Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this week I'm going to be addressing Jonathan Wexler's question on choosing a single-handed boat for the med. But before we get to that topic, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite UltraFeed sewing machine. The UltraFeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. I got an email from Paul English in Western Australia. He wrote, I'm living in Augusta in Western Australia and have become friends with a retired English gentleman called Rob. He's sailed around the world several times, and his stories are truly amazing. He is very literate, well-spoken, and his stories would make compelling listening for the podcast. And his email is, he gave me his email. So I reached out to him. Thank you, Paul, for that lead. I've reached out to Rob. Rob and I are in the process of trying to set up a time that works for him, which is 15 hours in advance of Salt Lake time or Utah time, and me. And also, Rob needs to learn how to use Skype. So, Paul, you might uh, get a hold of Rob and explain to him how to use Skype, because that's how I do my podcast. But he wrote me a long email telling me about his background, and it's going to be a fascinating interview when we get around to that. Today's January 6th at the ranch, and as I'm looking out my window, the snow is coming down. And it's been coming down for about four or five hours now. Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's been coming down for about six hours. Just not really heavy snow, just enough that it keeps accumulating little by little. I went out on my deck, shoveled it off, and it was about two inches of new snow since last night. But it is forecast to snow for another, oh, four or five hours today. And then I'll hop in the tractor and, and blow the snow off the road that comes into here. Had an interesting experience this week. On Thursday, one of my friends and podcast guest, Gary Harris, gave me a call. He lives in Phoenix, but he comes back and forth to Utah a lot. He was raised and grew up in Utah. And if you go back and listen to that interview that I did with him, I guess it was about a year ago that I did that interview. Anyway, search Gary Harris at the website if you want to listen to that. Anyway, Gary called me and said, I'm coming to Salt Lake, or I'm coming to Utah to go skiing tomorrow. Why don't you join us? And Gary is the brother of my one of my best friends, David Harris. And he said, meet us at Snow Basin at about uh, 8.30, 8.45 in the morning. So I got up, headed down to Snow Basin. And, and just before the opening of the resort, I got a call from my wife. She's living up here at the ranch. And she said, we have no water. And I said, oh... She said, what do I do? I said, well, go out. Well, let me first of all describe the water system here at the ranch to you. 
I have a well, and I have great water, wonderful, pure, rocky mountain water comes out of that well. There's nothing above me. All that's above me is uh, National Forest. Nobody lives above. Well, I guess there's another summer home area about five miles away from us. But other than that, there's really nothing above us. So we have very, very clean water up here. So we have a well, and the well pumps the water into the house through a one and a quarter inch galvanized pipe. And once it enters the house, it goes down to copper pipe. And I do not have a dielectric connection between the galvanized pipe and the copper pipe, and that's never been a problem. And it's still not a problem, so that's not the problem. But anyway, the crawl space of this house, we don't have a basement, we have a crawl space. In the old part of the house, the crawl space is about about two and a half feet. So you have to slither around on your belly to crawl into the old part of the house. And the new part of the house, the crawl space, is a nice, comfortable four feet. I wish it was deeper than that, but four feet is what I made the crawl space. And, of course, on the new side of the house, I have what's called conditioned crawl space, which means there's an actual heating vent that uh, keeps the crawl space heated so the pipes don't freeze. And there's a big hole between the old part of the house and the new part of the house. So we have what's called a conditioned crawl space. So it never freezes under the house as long as we keep the heat on in the house. Well, I told you how cold it was last week when we had temperatures down to minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit here. And we left and went down to the city, not really thinking about it, because I've never had problems with freezing pipes (laughs) before before, uh, a couple days ago. And my wife comes back up here, and she's here for a day, and she's fine, and then suddenly it quits working. Well, we come to think about it, and we have two big holding tanks for water that are pressure holding tanks. And we think she basically used up the water in the pressure tanks before she ran out of water and suddenly she had no water. So the pressure tanks will hold water, oh, maybe 20 gallons of water that uh, that will just be released automatically. And it's not recharging because there was a freeze in the line between the well and the house. Now, the line from the well to the house, we have a hydrant. Now, if you live down south, you probably don't deal with these issues, but in the in the mountain west and in the colder climates, you have to, to worry about freezing pipes. And, and my frost line here is about three feet uh, below the surface of the, uh, of the earth. So as long as I have my pipes buried more than three feet, they'll never freeze, but it does come up to being less than three feet as I come into the house. So I have this hydrant between the well and the house, which is about about 30 feet away from the, the house, the north side of the house. And then the well is about another 30 feet beyond that. And so I said, go out and turn on the hydrant. And this hydrant has is, is the type of hydrant where the actual valve is down at the galvanized pipe, way down low. So there's a a rod that opens and closes the valve, which is below the, the water line. And when you turn it off, it automatically drains the water out of the hydrant so that it doesn't freeze. So, so that will work all through the winter uh, as long as there's water getting to it. So I said, go out and turn on the hydrant and see if there's water there, because at that point in time, I can determine whether 
it's a freeze problem between the hydrant and the house or a well problem. And she turned on the water and there was water coming out of the hydrant. I said, oh, geez. Now, I'd heard that the way you can overcome, uh, you can melt a blockage of ice was to clamp a welding line onto two ends of the pipe and it will melt the area between the two pipes. And Dave, my friend Dave Harris, who's knowledgeable in all matters, uh, welding and construction and all sorts of things, he's a wealth of knowledge. I ask him, so we happen to get on the lift that day or skiing? He says, oh yeah, you need to take a, a welder and clamp one end on one side of the pipe and one end on the other side of the pipe. And, uh, and eventually it will heat up. It basically acts as a resistor between those two spots. The, there you have resistance in the pipe. And this works on metal pipes, but it would not work on plastic, of course. I don't know what I'd do with plastic, but I don't have that problem. I have a metal pipe, a one and a quarter inch galvanized pipe coming from the well into the house. And then it's copper inside the house. So I said, well, geez, to run a welder, I've got to have 220 volts. And I don't have a 220 volt outlet on the outside of the house. I do have an electric stove inside the house, but I didn't have an extension cord long enough to get it out there. And he said, well, come up to Logan and borrow my welder. And I've got some long leads and I've got some and I've got it hooked up to run a three-prong 220, 220 volts. Now, this is where the Europeans have it over the U.S. In Europe, you know, of course, in Europe, you're on 220 volts all the time. America is 115 to 120 or 110 to 120, 60 cycles per second electricity. And Europe is... Uh, 220 volts, 50 cycles per second on their electricity. So in Europe, you're always dealing with 220. In the United States, to get the higher power welders, you've got to you've got to use 220. Now there's 220 that comes into every house, but it's split, so you get 110 off each side of these uh, these lines that come into the house. And that's why if you look at a panel, you'll have two sides of the panel, and it's basically 220 comes in and 110 goes to one side and 110 goes to the other side, and then there's a common between them. Well, in Europe, you just have 220. And the nice thing about Europe is there's about four or five different plugs, and that's all you need. Yeah, I've got, I think, three different plugs that I carry around on my boat, depending on what I need to plug into. And I have pigtails that basically go from one plug to a different plug. Well, in the United States, there must be 20 different configurations for 220. And it's, it's a real pain to try to, to get 220. If a plug is one way, you've got to get a converter or make a pigtail to get it to another way. Well, I borrowed my friend's welder, and Dave's welder, and, and also his long leads, his long welding leads. And he had this converted to a three-prong uh, 220 to get it into. Well, get it down here, and it turns out I still had to make another pigtail to get it from his to, uh, to mine. I have a 7,000-watt portable generator that puts out 220, about 30 amps at 220. And that's that was more than enough to run the welder. So I ran the uh, generator out by the hydrant, started it up, connected one lead to the hydrant, and then another lead to a faucet coming out of the house, 
and I could tell that I had a good connection because when I connected the faucet out of the north end of the house, it sparked like you do when you hook up jumper cables to a battery. And so I left the uh, left it running for about, it took about two and a half hours, maybe three hours before it finally melted it, but sitting in here watching the wild card game between Seattle Seahawks and Dallas Cowboys. And about halfway through the game, suddenly I hear water running in the utility room next to the TV. And so fixed it. So there you go. If you have a water freeze, get a welder, make sure you have a connection between, you have the freeze between the two connections and eventually it will, it will eventually thaw it out. This is the first time I had to do that. I'd read about it. It works. It works. And also, if you want to be a sailor or just a general handyman, you need to learn to weld along the way anyway. So you may as well go yourself, go get yourself a, a good welder. Now, I ran this welder at 75 amps, which was 100% duty cycle on the welder. And that's why it took so long. If it had a higher 100% duty cycle, I would have ran it at a higher amperage rating, which would have made the job a little faster. But it worked. Just had to be patient. So this week we are going to address Jonathan Wexler's questions on how I would go about choosing a single-handed sailboat. Now I'm going to make a caveat that this is my opinion, and there's going to be a lot of opinions. Probably every sailor has his own opinion on what you need to have for a single-handed sailboat, but this is my opinion, and it's from my experience. But before we get to that, Jonathan wrote me a couple emails about the Schengen area. Now let me read those, because this is information that I was not aware of, and I don't know how many of you out there that are sailing in Europe that are not European citizens are aware of either. Let me get to that email. So Jonathan wrote, he said, I was listening to episode 158 as my morning wake up and heard you discuss the misery that is Schengen. Sadly, I am only too familiar with Schengen due to my method of recapturing my Portuguese citizenship. My unusual situation makes me neither fish nor fowl as a traveler. I have no visa, but cannot pick up either a long-term visa or a retirement visa because I am eligible and an applicant for actual citizenship. My dog, however, that's right, my dog, does have EU status. As a non-EU person, I too must leave the zone every 90 days in a 180-day period, but my dog cannot. She must stay in the EU, but leave the Schengen with me. This is because her passport allows free travel within the EU. But if she leaves the EU, she must go through a nightmare of reobtaining a clearance. <laughs> oh, don't you love European bureaucracy? Ah. All right, continuing on. A sailor can leave both the EU and the Schengen zones by sailing off to Turkey, Israel, Morocco, etc. And by the way, those, are, those choices are getting fewer and farther between. And, and uh, Montenegro used to be one, but they're talking about joining the EU as well. Then that would be one less. But anyway, let me continue on. But they can't. Let me start that paragraph over. A sailor can leave both the EU and the Schengen zone by sailing off to Turkey, Israel, Morocco, etc. But they cannot stay in the EU if they choose by going to one of the four EU members that are not Schengen members. 
Croatia, Romania, the UK, and Bulgaria. This has been how I've been living for the last 14 months, legally and continuously within the EU by not in the Schengen zone. For example, leave Slovenia on day 90 and enter and remain in Croatia, Bulgaria, Romania, and UK waters or ports without entering the other EU Schengen territory at all. In my case, 90 days in Portugal, followed by 90 days in the UK, followed by 90 days in Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Hungary, and Romania, and then, yes, back into Portugal at day 90. Please don't ask me my opinion on Schengen. I will start to rant and curse like a lunatic. Once you go down the Schengen rabbit hole, reality gets even worse. I had an immigration official do six duration calculations and come up with four different numbers. There is not one online calculator that all Schengen signatories agree to nor use, including the one on the EU's own website. So for what it's worth, you can stay in the EU, but still obey Schengen. All right. Then he followed that email up with this one, titled, To Make It More Confusing. To make it more confusing, there are also non-EU countries who are in Schengen, Norway and Switzerland, for example. So don't go there on your out time. Then there's Poland, who has a special exemption for Americans. Poland is both EU and Schengen, but has a special relationship with Americans and allows 180 days instead of 90 days. The counting method has also changed. You used to be able to step out of a non-Schengen country, then back. Now you must stay out for 90 days and not touch foot in a Schengen country, like the poor woman flying from Turkey to England and had a stopover in France. They pulled her off the plane, fined her, and deported her. She pointed out that she was in transit from one non-Schengen country to another non-Schengen country and didn't get off the plane. Too bad. She was fined and deported anyway. As to the count, stepping into a Schengen country starts the count. So I land in France for a week. This starts the count for a 90-day period. Even if I leave the country, the in-count continues for 90 days. Basically, I'm fictionally in Schengen for that 90-day block, even if I leave after a week. Thus, I cannot re-enter until 180 days have lapsed from my initial entry date. This is the best understanding I currently have based on my session with an immigration official in Romania. I asked him how he avoided insanity and responded, it's like this every day for me. Wow, this is insanity. You're an immigrant from Africa, that's all right. Come on into the country, we'll pay for you to stay here. You can use up our services, bankrupt the country. But boy, if you are a traveler paying your own way, we are going to make it difficult for you. Don't you love politicians? Okay, Jonathan, that's a lot to get my mind around. Fortunately, I've never had to deal with this, but I'm thinking, you know, let's say I, I go sailing for a couple months in, a, uh, in the Schengen. Let's say I go to Italy, sail for a couple months, and come home 
for a month or two, then go back. It sounds to me like I would be in violation of that 90-day rule at that point in time. Oh, man. I wonder how international travelers deal with this. People that are traveling back and forth to Europe all the time on business, I don't know if they even are aware of what they could be dealing with if the bureaucrats decide to step down hard on these people. I mean, there's a lot of international businessmen that fly from U.S. to Paris, stay for a couple days, come back to the U.S., go back in another month, stay for a couple days, come back and go back and forth a lot. I wonder how they get away with that. Anyway, just thoughts, just random thoughts. As far as I'm concerned, the sooner the EU breaks up, the happier I will be. So Britain, stick with your Brexit as far as I'm concerned. I'm all in favor of Brexit. I'm in favor of smaller government. The bigger the government, the more damage they do. (laughs) The more they steal your personal liberties and rights. That's my opinion. That's my editorial opinion. You're welcome to write me if you disagree, but I'll just ignore it. (laughs) All right. Let's get on to your main question. Jonathan, you asked me what would be my ideal, what or what would I be looking for in a single-handed sailboat? Now, I single-hand my boat quite a bit. And so, and, and you're right. My boat is a heavy displacement, blunt-bowed cutter with a full keel. Now, there's advantages to full keels and disadvantages to full keels. The advantages is my boat just, when it starts on attack, it just goes, and it steers itself for the most part. Even without my auto helm or my vane gear, my what I call vanity, I can let go of the tiller as long as my sails are trimmed correctly. As long, as long as I'm trimmed correctly on the boat, I can go down below, wander around for a minute or two, and when I come back up, the boat will have started to round up into the wind, but very slowly. Now, on a on a fin keel boat, if I did the same thing, it would round up very quickly. It would you know round up into the wind. So you have to stay at the helm a lot, a lot more. Well, you have to. Well, what's I mean, riding a fin keel boat is like driving a sports car versus, let's say, driving a limousine. Okay, that's probably the best description. You know, a sports car turns quickly; it's maneuverable. Where a big, comfortable car, not so maneuverable, not so sporty. So that's my boat, and I chose my boat because I was swayed by the party books, Larry and Lynn party books sailing seraphin around the world and then later on their talisman they have a boat very similar to mine talisman is a boat very similar to mine and it was built by sam moores in costa mesa california and i f- i spent five years finishing the boat i bought the holland deck and, and built the rest of it and the reason i did that is i wanted a, a boat that would take me anywhere in the world and when i finally decided to sail across the atlantic my insurance company required a survey and the first question on the survey was limits to navigation, and the surveyor said none. So he felt that it was a very seaworthy boat that is capable of going anywhere that I want to go. But the other side of that is my boat is a very expensive boat. And I noticed that more and more production boats are cutting corners where they can in in glass, in glass resin products, GRP. They're trying to make them as thin and thin as light as possible. Now, as long as you don't bump into anything, that's fine. 
as long as you lead a perfect life and never make a mistake, you're probably okay with that. But you don't have much room for error on the high, highly engineered, perfectly designed uh, hulls that a lot of boats are designed with. I was in Turkey in Kechibuku at a marina called Marty Marina. And I remember this several years, well, it was probably about 10 years ago. I'm walking through the boatyard. There's a little boatyard there, a travel lift in a boatyard. And a big 40-foot production boat, and I don't know what brand it was. It could have been a Juno or Beneteau or one of the standard production boats that you have in Europe was sitting up on the dock, and it looked like an egg that had been cracked. Somehow it had got between <laughs> maybe a seawall and another boat, and it, it had just basically cracked like an egg. The bulkheads were not enough to keep it from basically shattering. Not shattering, but cracked. It was really strange to look at this. So I'm a big believer of, of a margin of safety in my boat. Now... That's just the way I am. I want a heavy-duty hull, and if I bump into something, I don't want to start sinking. Now, there was a big storm off of uh, Cabo San Lucas in Mexico quite a few years ago. I remember reading it. There were a lot of cruising boats that were anchored off the coast, and this, this wind came up, and they were on a lee shore, and and a lot of the boats couldn't start their engine because it was stirring up so much sand that their, their water filters clogged up and couldn't, uh, couldn't cool the engine down. So they lost their engine. They couldn't get their sails up. So a lot of them dragged ashore. And one of those boats was my boat, a Sam Moore's design, or a uh, Lyle Hess design, Sam Moore's built Bristol Channel Cutter. And of all the boats that blew up on shore there was only one they just dragged off and it continued sailing all the others required massive uh, repairs and that was the bristol channel cutter so yeah it's it's got a heavy thick hull with lots of glass and uh, woven roven glass and i went down and saw the layup of the boat and it's hand laid it's not chopper laid it's hand laid up glass with resin between them so it's 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 designed to do that now the trouble is those boats are more expensive and they hold their value than the other small thin thin hauled boats so that's my preference for a boat it was a heavier haul now to get these boats fortunately all you have to do is go back to the 60s and 70s and maybe the 80s and back then they built hulls much heavier much thicker than they do now so maybe you'd look at an older boat rather than a newer boat and do a little more upgrading the uh, other systems of the boat. But anyway, that's my preference on, on a hull. Now, let's talk about rigging for a second. I prefer a cutter or a sloop. Prefer, for me, I prefer a cutter rig because it gives me more configurations of sail. I can roll up my lapper, which is my main jib, and run just under the staysail. And it's, I have, th well, on, the, on my new mainsail, I have two reefing points, but they're very deep reefing points, so I can reduce sail fairly easy on my main. Um, now, I, wouldn't not, I would not want a catch or a yawl just because it's more 
stuff to deal with as a single hander. And the one I've only sailed on one catch one time, and I couldn't see much point in the mizzen mast. Maybe it was just the day we went sailing, but it seemed to be always in the way and not really produce any real power or advantage to the boat. So I'm not a fan of more than than one mast. Let's talk about what you need to do when you're a single-handed sailor. When you're single-handing it, you're going to be sitting on the helm. So for me, the most important thing that you need to look at as a single-handed sailor is how are you going to steer the boat? In other words, um, I've got two methods that I steer my boat. Well, three methods. Hand method, which I do in and out of port. And then as soon as I'm out of port, I automatically switch to one of my other methods, which is my wind vane or my auto helm. And usually I only use my auto helm when I'm going dead downwind, when the wind vane will not sail the boat, or when there's no wind and I'm motoring. So I use my auto helm for steering the boat when I'm motoring. And that was one of the first things I bought on my boat as soon as I launched it, because I realized I didn't like sitting at the tiller for hours and hours and hours on end. I enjoyed looking around. I enjoyed, uh, you know, reading a book, looking up once in a while. And I couldn't do that if I was on the tiller. In my case, my boat's a tiller, not a steering wheel. So I would put at the very, very top of the list, how are you going to steer your boat? And highly recommend that you have some sort of wind vane. There's a servo pendulum wind vane, or there's a regular wind vane like mine that runs a trim tab on the back of my rudder, which will easily steer the boat in moderate to light, in light to heavy winds. It'll steer my boat as long as I'm going anywhere from, anywhere from, oh, a, a bit of a run up to a tight tack. And it will not steer the boat going downwind unless it's very, very strong winds. So that's, uh, that's pretty much what I use my wind vane for. Now, if I'm in really strong winds and there's a lot of waves, I will also use my wind vane to steer the boat when under power. As long as there's enough a, a relative wind to keep the vane where it needs to be, I will use my wind vane when my boat is under power, as long as I'm, as long as it's very windy, as long as there's enough wind to, to steer the boat with the wind vane. And usually at that point in time, the waves are high enough that my auto helm is overpowered by the waves. So the auto helm doesn't seem to be able to steer the boat in those high wind, high wave conditions, but the wind vane does. So right at the very top of my list, I would put some sort of a wind vane or steering system on the boat that does not require electricity and then second would be uh back uh, secondly would be a, an electric electric auto helm just like i have so when i'm motoring and it's calm i stick the auto helm on when i have wind i stick the the vanity on my wind vane on that's what i named her vanity because she's very vain Okay, so that's the number one thing you need to look at as a, as a single-hander. Number two, <laughs> it's easy to sail a boat. It's hard to dock a boat, okay? So, and it's hard to anchor a boat by yourself. So number two, I'd probably put number two. Um, I'm trying to decide here which one to go with. Number two, I'm going to say you want an electric windlass 
that you can control from the cockpit, not have to get up on the bow to lower the anchor, or not have to go up to the bow to release a clutch to lower the anchor. You want to be able to control dropping your anchor from your cockpit. And I think of this as, uh, you know, when I'm coming into Greece in particular, where I'm coming into keys, concrete keys, and you have to drop your anchor and back into the, uh, into the key, you can't be up at the bow dropping the anchor and back at the uh, cockpit steering the boat in reverse. You've got to be able to control the bow of the boat with the anchor from the cockpit. Now, the way I did this with my boat is... Now, I had my boat was that was a hand windlass for many, many, many years. And once, uh, once in Lapare, twice I had to pull up my anchor with this little hand crank winch windlass. And uh, it was in over 100 feet of water. And it was, my, my shoulder was shot by the time I got the anchors up the second time. Fortunately, at that point in time, I also had some crew with me. So I didn't have to be at the back of the boat and the front of the boat at the same time. I had a crew member back of the boat steering the boat for me. Now, if I'd been by myself, it would have been a lot more difficult. Not saying it couldn't have been done, but it would have been a lot more difficult. So as soon as I could, I put on electric windlass and that's made my life much, much happier. And I've had to go through two of them. The windlass I bought, the first one was a Maxwell, and the second one was a Maxwell. And I'm not very pleased with Maxwell windlasses. They don't seem to respond much to requests for information. Their websites suck. They don't give information out on rebuilding the winches. They just, they just, the, the windlasses are okay. But as far as I'm concerned, that first windlass I bought should have lasted the lifetime of the boat, and it didn't. It froze up, and uh, and I could not get really any service at all from from the Maxwell windlass people. And I finally bought a separate motor to take over with me one year, and it still didn't seem to fix the problem. So I still have this motor that's a 12-volt motor that in my garage. I don't know what I'll do with it, but it's a high... A very expensive motor. I ended up buying a new one. And in my configuration on my boat, I really didn't have that many choices as far as the winches to go with. What worked for me was only the Maxwell windlass. And if I could have chosen a different one, I might have chosen a different one. Now, I don't have experience with other winches, but I'm not particularly happy with the service of the Maxwell windlass people. Now, the windlass works fine when it works. And this new one has been working fine for, what, three or four years now. But what I did is I mounted the windlass on my bowsprit, and then I have it. the chain go straight into the chain locker, which is right under my bowsprit at the bow of the boat. And so I can raise, I can raise, I need to go forward and take off the chain road cap, and make sure that the chain is coming straight up from the anchor locker into the wildcat on the windlass and make sure that my anchor is hanging over a little bit so that it'll run free. And I do this all before I come into port. So I'm doing this maybe five minutes before I start needing it. Then I will, I have the actual control for the windlass on a long line, a long electrical line, a control box, the control box is on a long extension cord that comes out from the center of the boat, comes out the center hatch. And with this 
electrical cord, this electrical extension, I can either go all the way forward with the control box in my hand right up to the bow of the boat, or I can go back to the cockpit. So I have the full length of the boat where I can be controlling the anchor from. And I think that's very important that you need to be able to control your anchor from the cockpit of the boat. So that would be number two on my list for a single-handed vessel. All right, and number three, you need to... My boat always looks like a, uh, to some people, my boat would not look ship-shaped because I always have lines hanging on my lifelines. I have three mooring lines on each side of the boat, two stern lines, two spring lines, and two bow lines. So I actually have four lines on each side of the boat, always there, ready to go. Then I have a couple other lines that are always coiled up ready to go that I can use if I need to. Now you see most boats, they take all their mooring lines and tuck them away in a nice little locker and they're nice and neat and the boat looks clean. Um, number one, I don't have a locker on my small 28 foot Bristol Channel cutter where I could store these easily and get at them easily. My lazarette is full of other stuff. My hardware stores in my lazarette and I've got fasteners and fasteners and extra stuff and extra anchors and things in my lazarette that I need and that's full and so for me I want to be able to get at my mooring lines easily so I always have two stern lines ready to go two two spring lines at the center of the boat ready to go and two bow lines at the bow of the boat ready to go that way I'm set up to be able to tie off on either side of the boat if I need to. Now I still have to go up and uncoil the lines and get them ready and run them, but I always keep my lines easily accessible. Now if you have a full crew and you're, you know, you have people with you that can get your mooring lines ready, fine. You know, go and be neat and tuck them away in a nice locker and be ready for them. But for me, I don't have that luxury and, uh, that's the other thing I want to do is I want to have my mooring lines ready. All right. And then the other thing you need to look at is um, how much uh, you can store on the boat. I've got a lot of spare parts on my boat, and I've used them off and on throughout the years. And <laughs> it's, it's not like I can get on Amazon and have something shipped to me easily in Europe. I remember trying to buy something in Croatia that needed to be shipped through that was coming from, I think it was one of the Scandinavian countries. And when I asked how much it's going to cost to ship, nobody could ever give me an honest answer. Nobody seemed to know, but it was expensive. So I tend to take a lot of stuff over with me from the States when I go over, especially spare parts, because I know it's hard to get the things over there that, that I need. It just, uh, you know, even in Dubrovnik, which has a lot of services I was searching and searching and searching for a outboard impeller over there that I could not find. You know, finally I had to say, well, I just won't replace it this year. Got back to the States, ordered it on Amazon, have a couple extra now, so it'll be sitting in my lazarette when I have another problem like this. So you've got to have some, some room for spare parts, some room for water, some room for food, 
So you've got to have enough storage space down below. My boat will sleep three comfortably. I like to sail with three people on my boat. I wish it was a little bigger so I could have four. Um, now that I'm older, when my wife and I are on it together, it's great. But I would really like a bigger boat. And quite honestly, I'd like to go to uh, a big boat like Jack Andrews has, like a Bavaria 40-something foot boat, and use it part of the year. I wouldn't want it for my full-time sailboat. But, you know, I like to take my daughters and their husbands sailing and their grandkids. And my boat is not big enough to do that. So really it depends on what you need the boat for. And if you're just going to be a, a, a solo sailor, a single-hander, you might want to go with a smaller boat. I've seen big boats being sailed by individuals. Like I say, anybody can sail a boat. It's, it's docking it that becomes difficult. And I see 40-foot boats being single-handed all the time. But those are fin keel boats. And then once you get to a 40-foot boat, you need to start looking at a bow thruster to control the bow of the boat. That's what I would want to do. If I had a bigger boat than mine, in fact, even on my boat, I wish I had a bow thruster because backing up with a full keel is very difficult. It's always an adventure. You never know which direction the boat's going to go. At least I've never figured out how it's going to go in the, <laughs> the almost the, the 25 years of sailing on my boat that I've been sailing on. I still can't get it to go consistently the way I want it to go in reverse. Anyway, that's going to be finishing up my comments on what you need to look for on a boat that you want to handle by yourself. Thanks for the question, Jonathan, and thanks for that information on the Schengen Agreement. So here's my little plea for money. If you want to support this podcast, please go to Patreon and support the podcast. Right now, I think I'm getting about $40 a month from my Patreon members out there, and I really appreciate you guys that have stepped up to the plate and helped me out. This podcast, just the hosting for this podcast, is about... Uh, I think it's not that bad. Just the hosting for it is around $150 a year. and But <laughs> my time is free, I guess. But I would really like more patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.